everybody, welcome back to What Happened to Syria. Episode 11 is still being edited. It's taking a lot longer than I thought it would to wrap it up. It was about four hours long when I finished recording, and it may and it may still be well over three hours by the time I'm done editing it. The next episode is gruesome. There's no other word for it. From the discovery of Hamza Ali al-Khatib's fate and other horrific situations, I got overwhelmed. I've been studying Syria, the Assad regime, and the conflict over there for several years. I've gotten used to reading about, hearing, and seeing some really horrible stuff. But y'all, I hit my limit. Children being tortured, sometimes to death, is something I just can't stand. I've had to move very slowly editing episode 11 because my mental health demanded it. But I couldn't just let y'all go another week without an episode. So I've decided to share some of what's already done. This is an excerpt from episode 11, The Last Straw. It'll be released as part of the full episode once it's done. Until then, please enjoy this mini-episode, or mini-sode, I guess, titled Dara's Devastation. I feel like I've done an inadequate job addressing the siege of Dara in previous episodes. So I want to lay out some of the facts about the regime's actions while the city was under siege and the impact this had on the people who lived there. Again, we've gone over Dara, the role that it played in the revolution, and the regime's violent response to it. We've gone over it before. We also even interviewed a guy who lived in Dara at the time and participated in protests. I recommend everybody check out the episodes we did with Fadl. We'll put a link in the description. Yeah, Fadl described just some absolutely horrific stuff when he talked about living in the city during the siege. He described seeing bodies in the streets. People weren't allowed to go out or even even if somebody tried to, to drag one of the one of the dead bodies to safety, that person would also be shot and their body would also be left in the street for days or weeks. It was only after a long period of state violence that the people who lived in Dara were allowed out of their homes to go buy food or bury the dead. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this broke the people of Dara. It did not. Events in the future are going to completely disprove that notion. One thing people need to understand about Dara is that this is a rural area. These are people who do not like being told what to do by the central authority. Culturally speaking, there are some significant differences between Dara versus a place like Damascus or Aleppo. For example, we had a guest on recently for a bonus episode, Rami Safadi, and he's got a picture in his Twitter profile that was taken in Dara during the siege of Dara. If you look at the Twitter handle, at Rami Safadi 93, you'll see a picture of this man throwing a rock at a tank. Like the old saying goes, a picture says a thousand words. This old man throws a rock at a tank. The picture captures the rock in midair, hurling towards the tank. The regime sent tanks and soldiers against unarmed civilians. So when people talk about peaceful protesting or rioting, well, what do you do when you've got an armored column coming for you? Can you stay peaceful? They're about to kill your kids. So just to clarify what exactly happened during the siege of Dara, I want to turn to a report written by Human Rights Watch titled, We've never seen such horror. I I just want to skim over some parts. 
with y'all before we get on with the episode. On page two of this PDF that you could go find, it, you could easily just Google it. Just Google, we've never seen such horror, Dara, you'll find it. On the seventh page of the PDF file, this is page two of the report. It just lists some of the uh, the deadliest incidents that took place in a period of months during the spring of 2011. This includes the attack on the Omari Mosque that we talked about in an early episode, which resulted in more than 30 deaths. Also, killings during protests throughout April. We mentioned those as well on the show. And there's a lot of smaller scale incidents where people were either protesting and somebody got shot, or oftentimes what would happen afterward is that you'd have people attend the funeral for the person who got shot, and sometimes that funeral would become a protest of itself and more people would get shot. But this was all before the actual siege of Dara, though. The siege of Dara began in late April. Before that, there was this weird period where... The regime kind of gave up on Dara, but at the same time, they were also periodically killing people from a distance. In late April, they gave up on that. They just went full bore. We're going to slaughter the opposition. Human Rights Watch describes in their report, quote, On April 23, 2011, security forces fired on funeral processions in Barza, Duma, Isra, killing at least 12 mourners, unquote. Okay, they're not just specifically talking about Dara, they're talking about multiple places across Syria, but Dara is the epicenter of the killing. Now back to the quote. Quote, As protests continued, security forces launched large-scale military operations on towns and neighborhoods identified as hubs of protests. On April 25th, security forces moved into the city of Dara using military vehicles, including numerous tanks and armored personnel carriers, under a cover of heavy gunfire that lasted unabated for about 16 hours. The security forces occupied all neighborhoods in Dara, imposed checkpoints, and placed snipers on the roofs of buildings in many parts of the city. They imposed a siege on the city, cut off electricity and all means of communications, and prevented any movement by opening fire on anyone who tried to leave their house. Once they had established full control of the city, the security forces then proceeded to arrest hundreds of men from their homes. This pattern would be repeated in a number of places, with varying degrees of military involvement. Security forces surrounded Duma, a suburb of Damascus that was the scene of large anti-government protests, in the early hours of April 25th, deployed a heavy security presence in each neighborhood, set up checkpoints, and proceeded to raid homes, arresting dozens of men. Unquote. There were also numerous cases of women and children being abused during these night raids. I'm just going to skip ahead a little further in the document. Quote, in some cases, the security forces resorted to detaining relatives and even neighbors of government critics in an effort to obtain information on their whereabouts or force them to stop their activism. For example, on May 11th, security forces detained Wael Hamadeh, a political activist and husband of prominent rights advocate Razan Zaituna from his office. The security forces had gone to the couple's home on April 30th searching for them but detained instead Hamadeh's younger brother, Abdel Rahman, 20 years old at the time, when they could not find them. Unquote. That was We've Never Seen Such Horror from Human Rights Watch. You can easily find this PDF file just by Googling the title. There's another passage in this report that I think also does a really great job describing how the state violence in Dara played out and evolved over time. From the end of March, witnesses consistently reported the presence of snipers on government buildings near the protests 
who targeted and killed many of the protesters. Many of the victims, as described by witnesses to Human Rights Watch and pictured on scores of cell phone videos smuggled out of Dara, sustained head, neck, and chest wounds, suggesting they were deliberately targeted. Other evidence obtained by Human Rights Watch also suggests that the security forces participating in the operations against the protesters in Dara and other cities had received, at least in a number of cases, quote, shoot-to-kill orders from their commanders. Human Rights Watch interviewed a soldier from the Presidential Guard who had deserted after the unit was deployed to deal with a demonstration in the city of Harasta on April 18th, 2011. The commanders, the soldier said, initially told them that they were being deployed to deal with armed militias, yet what they saw upon arrival to Harasta was a peaceful demonstration. Nonetheless, the soldier said they had received clear orders to shoot, with no conditions or prerequisites. Literally, to load and shoot. Another witness, a resident of Dara, described to Human Rights Watch an episode when together with a group of other protesters, he managed to briefly capture several members of the political security branch of the security services. According to the witness, the captured security men said they, quote, were only following orders and their orders were to kill, not to take prisoners, unquote, and added that they could not surrender to the protesters as they would have been killed by their commanders if they refused to shoot. Security forces who participated in the crackdown in Dara included several army units. Witnesses specifically referred to the 4th Division under the command of Maher al-Assad, President Bashar al-Assad's brother as well as various branches of Syria's Makabarat, or security services. Witnesses said that the majority of security forces wore green military camouflage, but that they eventually learned how to distinguish members of different branches of the Makabarat by the colored stripes on their uniforms. One witness told Human Rights Watch that members of the military intelligence wear a green stripe, Air Force intelligence wear a white stripe, state security a yellow stripe, and the presidential guard a black stripe while the political security often wore plain black uniforms. Witnesses also said that in some cases, Macabrat members wore civilian clothes. According to witnesses, some of the security forces in black uniforms were equipped with riot control and other special gear, including bulletproof vests, helmets, shields, and night vision goggles. Snipers also wore black uniforms. Some of the forces were from Dara, while others were brought in from other regions by helicopters and buses. Several witnesses independently told Human Rights Watch that most of the violence was perpetrated by Makabarat forces, while army units on several occasions seemed reluctant to shoot at protesters, who allowed them to cross through checkpoints and, at at least two occasions described in detail to Human Rights Watch, refused orders to shoot and either surrendered to the protesters or handed over their weapons. Unquote. As early as 2011, we're seeing a pattern where the army is less willing to engage in the regime's dirty work than the Makabarat and the people who work for them. And as a result, we're going to see the Makabarat take a more hands-on role regarding the oppression, the massacres, everything associated with the regime's barbaric actions during the war, while the army kind of takes a backseat role after weeks of being shot at, sometimes being shelled by tanks. Some people in Dara did finally get fed up and gave up on remaining peaceful. The report by Human Rights Watch, We've Never Seen Such Horror, has a segment describing exactly this. Quote, Several witnesses interviewed by Human Rights Watch also said that protesters had killed 
members of security forces. One witness said that on one occasion, he could not remember the date of the incident. After snipers on rooftops killed several protesters, people waited until the snipers ran out of ammunition and then ran up to the roofs and threw several snipers off the buildings. Another witness said on April 22nd, protesters in Nawa, a town west of Dara, marched toward the political security office and demanded the release of two detainees who had been taken by the security forces from the hospital, unquote. We're going to have a lot more to say about people being taken from hospitals by the security forces very soon. Now back to the quote. Quote, The witness, Saleh, not his real name, said that the protesters were waving olive branches, and a tribal leader pleaded with the political security to release the wounded men. Instead, 15 political security agents opened fire at the crowd, killing at least four people and wounding another eight. Saleh said that the protesters, who were more than a thousand people, had seven shotguns among them, which they fired. But mostly they just kept retreating and coming back, hoping that the security forces would run out of ammunition. Unquote. So this is not an even fight. Okay, it might sound like the protesters have the upper hand when they corner a sniper in a building. Yeah, sure, but that's when they get up close to the sniper. Before that, barring running out of bullets, the sniper has free reign to kill as many of them as he wants to from a distance. And in the case of some, well, I know this might sound disrespectful, but I, th I think this will help Americans understand what's going on. When these rural folk go to meet with the, the secret police, this isn't an even shootout. This is not an even fight. You've got the macabre spraying at these people with AK-47s, while a few of them, seven shotguns in total, occasionally fire birdshot at them. I think this is why a lot of Syrians push back when they hear people who aren't from Syria refer to this as the Syrian Civil War. At least in 2011, it is still the Syrian revolution. This situation is not yet what people think of when they say the words Syrian civil war. You don't have rebels and or jihadists backed by a variety of nation states with heavy weaponry going up against the government backed by Russia. We're not there yet. This is a totalitarian regime trying to impose an iron fist on a rural community, and this rural community that's used to having relative autonomy, isn't going to put up with it, especially especially after those kids got kidnapped and tortured by the former provincial governor. Now, regarding the, the mention of people being taken from the hospital by the security forces, this was happening all over Syria as early as the spring of 2011. These hospitals, for the most part, were run by the government. When people would show up with gunshot wounds right after security forces had been shooting at protesters, People would look at them, and the natural assumption was that if this person has a gunshot wound, they got to be a protester. So whether it was willingly or unwillingly, the hospitals ended up handing over these people to the macabre. These people oftentimes needed to be in the ER or the ICU with grievous injuries. Instead, they're handed over to people who will torture them. In addition to being shot in the streets, you could also just get picked up and never seen again dragged off to the most horrible prison imaginable. No, it's worse than you can imagine. And then being tortured there for months or years, and you'll probably die as a result of the torture. I mean, we throw around the word torture to describe 
stuff done by a lot of countries. But I, as we've gone over in other episodes, torture in Syria is unique. And sometimes if you survive being shot in the streets, being handed over by your doctors to people who torture you, and then you don't die from the torture, you might end up in a mass execution. That's the kind of risks that protesters in Syria faced in 2011. The report, We've Never Seen Such Horror, by Human Rights Watch, has a very detailed and, frankly, graphic segment describing exactly this. Quote, Two witnesses independently reported to Human Rights Watch a case of an extrajudicial execution of detainees on May 1st, 2011, at the ad hoc detention facility at the football field in Dara. One of the witnesses, Ali, said, We were brought into the football field where I managed to take my blindfold off. There were about 2,000 detainees there. <clears throat> they brought me there around 6 a.m., and several hours later, the guards went around the field, randomly picking some detainees. I counted them. They picked 26 people, all young, physically fit men. As they picked them, they would say, We found weapons on you. I knew one man. His name is Talib. His wife is from our neighborhood. They lined him up in one line, facing him away from us, from where I was standing. Six or seven soldiers were in front of us, some two meters away, and the selected detainees were in front of the soldiers, facing away ten meters in front of the soldiers. They were all blinded and handcuffed. The soldiers had Kalashnikov rifles. One of the soldiers, I think he was an officer, I don't know for sure, raised his hand and waved and they fired, without saying anything. It was automatic gunfire, and the 26 men immediately fell on the ground. Everybody was too scared to even move, let alone say anything. Many people were blindfolded and couldn't see what had happened. The soldiers picked up the bodies and moved them into a military truck. These are Russian military trucks that look like big Land Rovers. They belong to the Military Battalion 132. This battalion is stationed in Dara not far from the place where I live, so I've seen them before. They brought three of these trucks and loaded all the bodies on them and drove away. Ali said he did not know what had happened to the other bodies, but Taleb's body was never returned to the family, and Taleb's wife did not know what had happened to him, as he and other witnesses were too scared to tell anyone about what they saw. Another witness, Hussein, interviewed independently, provided a similar account to Human Rights Watch. He said, They brought me to the football field at around 9 a.m. I was blindfolded and handcuffed, but could feel and hear that were feel and hear that there were lots of people there already. About 50 minutes later, I was standing with my face to the wall and eventually managed to push my blindfold a little bit up by rubbing my forehead against the wall. I could see by then the field by turning my head back and forth. There were more than 1,500 people there. I saw the soldiers leading away a group of about 20 men, I couldn't tell exactly how many, at gunpoint. They took them to the side about 50 meters from where I was standing. I couldn't see much, but less than 15 minutes later, I heard automatic gunfire and screams. I knew immediately that this group was killed. I was convinced we would be next. We were too scared to even whisper. Then the soldiers started screaming at us, saying, Dogs, you want freedom? You'll have it. They pointed their guns at us loading and unloading them, saying, You are sentenced to death by gunfire. 
They didn't mention the guys that were just killed, but it was clear. I was convinced they would shoot us right there. I didn't see what happened to the bodies. I didn't dare to turn my head anymore. Human Rights Watch has not been able to further corroborate these accounts. However, the detailed information provided by two independent witnesses and the fact that other parts of their statements concerning their detention in the military intelligence facility in Dara and then in Damascus were fully corroborated by other detainees held in these facilities, supporting the credibility of the allegations. A number of Dara residents and two other Syrian activists interviewed by Human Rights Watch referred to the existence of mass graves in Dara. The limited information available to Human Rights Watch is not sufficient to determine whether the mass graves are connected to the executions. The discovery of bodies in a shallow, unmarked grave in the Bahar area, around 200 meters from the southern cemetery of Dara, in an area known locally as Tal at Muhammad Asari, was widely reported on May 16, 2011 after video footage was posted on YouTube showing a number of men pulling dead bodies from the ground. The footage shows earth-moving machinery with Dara license plate number 977149 assisting in the digging. A Dara resident of the Apazade family, currently in another Arab country, told Human Rights Watch that at least seven bodies were found and that five of the bodies were identified as members of the Abizade family, including 62-year-old Abdullah Abdulaziz Abizade and his four grown-up sons, Samir, Samer, Mohammed, and Suleiman. The other two bodies had not been identified, but were of a woman and a girl, the source said. He had received the footage from a close friend in Dara and had helped post the footage on YouTube. He said, On May 15th, a Dara man informed a number of local residents that a strong smell emanated from a patch of land around 200 meters from the Bahar Cemetery. The next day, a group of young men, including my cousin, went to the spot and found the bodies close to the surface. They informed the local authorities, who dispatched some people to dig them up. One of the witnesses told Human Rights Watch that on, that, on the day when the grave was discovered, he was in the hospital and saw security personnel bringing in nine bodies in sacks. Five of the bodies, he said, were soon identified by relatives as members of the Abazade family. The witness happened to know two of the sons, while the others remained unidentified. Unquote. That was We've Never Seen Such Horror by Human Rights Watch. Dara was put under a brutal siege that prevented supplies from getting in or information from getting out. And we are going to see many, many cities in Syria suffer a similar fate in the years to come. I feel like I've done an inadequate job addressing the siege of Dara in previous episodes. So I want to lay out some of the facts about the regime's actions while the city was under siege and the impact this had on the people who lived there. Again, we've gone over Dara, the role that it played in the revolution, and the regime's violent response to it. We've gone over it before. We also even interviewed a guy who lived in Dara at the time and participated in protests. I recommend everybody check out the episodes we did with Fadl. We'll put a link in the description. Yeah, Fadl described just some absolutely horrific stuff when he talked about living in the city during the siege. He described seeing bodies in the streets. People weren't allowed to go out or even 
even if somebody tried to to drag one of the one of the dead bodies to safety, that person would also be shot, and their body would also be left in the street for days or weeks. It was only after a long period of state violence that the people who lived in Dara were allowed out of their homes to go buy food or bury the dead. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this broke the people of Dara. It did not. Events in the future are going to completely disprove that notion. One thing people need to understand about Dara is that this is a rural area. These are people who do not like being told what to do by the central authority. Culturally speaking, there are some significant differences between Dara versus a place like Damascus or Aleppo. For example, we had a guest on recently for a bonus episode, Rami Safadi, and he's got a picture in his Twitter profile that was taken in Dara during the siege of Dara. If you look at the Twitter handle, at Rami Safadi 93, you'll see a picture of this man throwing a rock at a tank. Like the old saying goes, a picture says a thousand words. This old man throws a rock at a tank. The picture captures the rock in midair, hurling towards the tank. The regime sent tanks and soldiers against unarmed civilians. So when people talk about peaceful protesting or rioting, well, what do you do when you've got an armored column coming for you? Can you stay peaceful? They're about to kill your kids. So just to clarify what exactly happened during the siege of Dara, I want to turn to a report written by Human Rights Watch titled, We've never seen such horror. I, would, I just want to skim over some parts with y'all before we get on with the episode. On page two of this PDF that you could go find, it, you could easily just Google it. Just Google, we've never seen such horror, Dara, you'll find it. On the seventh page of the PDF file, this is page two of the report. It just lists some of the, uh, the deadliest incidents that took place in a period of months during the spring of 2011. This includes the attack on the Omari Mosque that we talked about in an early episode, which resulted in more than 30 deaths. Also, killings during protests throughout April. We mentioned those as well on the show. And there's a lot of smaller scale incidents where people were either protesting and somebody got shot, or oftentimes what would happen afterward is that you'd have people attend the funeral for the person who got shot, and sometimes that funeral would become a protest in of itself and more people would get shot. But this was all before the actual siege of Dara, though. The siege of Dara began in late April. Before that, there was this weird period where... The regime kind of gave up on Dara, but at the same time, they were also periodically killing people from a distance. In late April, they gave up on that. They just went full bore. We're going to slaughter the opposition. Human Rights Watch describes in their report, quote, On April 23, 2011, security forces fired on funeral processions in Barza, Duma, Isra, killing at least 12 mourners, unquote. Okay, they're not just specifically talking about Dara, they're talking about multiple places across Syria, but Dara is the epicenter of the killing. Now back to the quote. Quote, As protests continued, security forces launched large-scale military operations on towns and neighborhoods identified as hubs of protests. On April 25th, security forces moved into the city of Dara using military vehicles, including numerous tanks and armored personnel carriers, under a cover of heavy gunfire that lasted unabated for about 16 hours. The security forces occupied all neighborhoods in Dara, imposed checkpoints, and placed snipers on the roofs of buildings in many parts of the city. 
They imposed a siege on the city, cut off electricity and all means of communications, and prevented any movement by opening fire on anyone who tried to leave their house. Once they had established full control of the city, the security forces then proceeded to arrest hundreds of men from their homes. This pattern would be repeated in a number of places with varying degrees of military involvement. Security forces surrounded Duma, a suburb of Damascus that was the scene of large anti-government protests in the early hours of April 25th, deployed a heavy security presence in each neighborhood, set up checkpoints, and proceeded to raid homes, arresting dozens of men, unquote. There were also numerous cases of women and children being abused during these night raids. I'm just going to skip ahead a little further in the document. Quote, in some cases, the security forces resorted to detaining relatives and even neighbors of government critics in an effort to obtain information on their whereabouts or force them to stop their activism. For example, on May 11th, security forces detained Wael Hamadeh, a political activist and husband of prominent rights advocate Razan Zaituna from his office. The security forces had gone to the couple's home on April 30th searching for them, but detained instead Hamadeh's younger brother Abdel Rahman, 20 years old at the time, when they could not find them. Unquote. That was, we've never seen such horror from Human Rights Watch. You can easily find this PDF file just by Googling the title. There's another passage in this report that I think also does a really great job describing how the state violence in Dara played out and evolved over time. From the end of March, witnesses consistently reported the presence of snipers on government buildings near the protests who targeted and killed many of the protesters. Many of the victims, as described by witnesses to Human Rights Watch and pictured on scores of cell phone videos smuggled out of Dara, sustained head, neck, and chest wounds, suggesting they were deliberately targeted. Other evidence obtained by Human Rights Watch also suggests that the security forces participating in the operations against the protesters in Dara and other cities had received, at least in a number of cases, quote, shoot-to-kill orders from their commanders. Human Rights Watch interviewed a soldier from the Presidential Guard who had deserted after the unit was deployed to deal with a demonstration in the city of Harasta on April 18th, 2011. The commanders, the soldier said, initially told them that they were being deployed to deal with armed militias, yet what they saw upon arrival to Harasta was a peaceful demonstration. Nonetheless, the soldier said they had received clear orders to shoot, with no conditions or prerequisites. Literally, to load and shoot. Another witness, a resident of Dara, described a Human Rights Watch an episode when together with a group of other protesters, he managed to briefly capture several members of the political security branch of the security services. According to the witness, the captured security men said they, quote, were only following orders and their orders were to kill, not to take prisoners, unquote and added that they could not surrender to the protesters as they would have been killed by their commanders if they refused to shoot. Security forces who participated in the crackdown in Dara included several army units. Witnesses specifically referred to the 4th Division under the command of Maher al-Assad, President Bashar al-Assad's brother, as well as various branches of Syria's Makabarat, or security services. Witnesses said that the majority of security forces wore green military camouflage, but that they eventually learned how to distinguish members of different branches of the Makabarat by the colored stripes on their uniforms. One witness told Human Rights Watch that members of the military intelligence wear a green stripe, Air Force intelligence wear a white stripe, state security a yellow stripe, 
and the Presidential Guard a black stripe, while the political security often wore plain black uniforms. Witnesses also said that in some cases, Macabrot members wore civilian clothes. According to witnesses, some of the security forces in black uniforms were equipped with riot control and other special gear, including bulletproof vests, helmets, shields, and night vision goggles. Snipers also wore black uniforms. Some of the forces were from Dara, while others were brought in from other regions by helicopters and buses. Several witnesses independently told Human Rights Watch that most of the violence was perpetrated by Makabarat forces, while army units on several occasions seemed reluctant to shoot at protesters, who allowed them to cross through checkpoints and, at at least two occasions described in detail to Human Rights Watch, refused orders to shoot and either surrendered to the protesters or handed over their weapons. Unquote. As early as 2011, we're seeing a pattern where the army is less willing to engage in the regime's dirty work than the Macabarat and the people who work for them. And as a result, we're going to see the Macabarat take a more hands-on role regarding the oppression, the massacres, everything associated with the regime's barbaric actions during the war, while the army kind of takes a backseat role after weeks of being shot at, sometimes being shelled by tanks. Some people in Dara did finally get fed up and gave up on remaining peaceful. The report by Human Rights Watch, We've Never Seen Such Horror, has a segment describing exactly this. Quote, Several witnesses interviewed by Human Rights Watch also said that protesters had killed members of security forces. One witness said that on one occasion, he could not remember the date of the incident. After snipers on rooftops killed several protesters, people waited until the snipers ran out of ammunition and then ran up to the roofs and threw several snipers off the buildings. Another witness said on April 22nd, protesters in Nawa, a town west of Dara, marched toward the political security office and demanded the release of two detainees who had been taken by the security forces from the hospital, unquote. We're going to have a lot more to say about people being taken from hospitals by the security forces very soon. Now back to the quote. Quote, The witness, Saleh, not his real name, said that the protesters were waving olive branches and a tribal leader pleaded with the political security to release the wounded men. Instead, 15 political security agents opened fire at the crowd, killing at least four people and wounding another eight. Saleh said that the protesters, who were more than a thousand people, had seven shotguns among them, which they fired. But mostly they just kept retreating and coming back, hoping that the security forces would run out of ammunition. Unquote. So this is not an even fight. Okay, it might sound like the protesters have the upper hand when they corner a sniper in a building. Yeah, sure. But that's when they get up close to the sniper. Before that, barring running out of bullets, the sniper has free reign to kill as many of them as he wants to from a distance. And in the case of some, well, I know this might sound disrespectful, but I, th I think this will help Americans understand what's going on. When these rural folk go to meet with the, the secret police, this isn't an even shootout. This is not an even fight. You've got the Macabrat spraying at these people with AK-47s, while a few of them, seven shotguns in total, occasionally fire birdshot at them. 
I think this is why a lot of Syrians push back when they hear people who aren't from Syria refer to this as the Syrian Civil War. At least in 2011, it is still the Syrian Revolution. This situation is not yet what people think of when they say the words Syrian Civil War. You don't have rebels and or jihadists backed by a variety of nation states with heavy weaponry going up against the government backed by Russia. We're not there yet. This is a totalitarian regime trying to impose an iron fist on a rural community, and this rural community that's used to having relative autonomy isn't going to put up with it, especially especially after those kids got kidnapped and tortured by the former provincial governor. Now, regarding the, the mention of people being taken from the hospital by the security forces, this was happening all over Syria as early as the spring of 2011. These hospitals, for the most part, were run by the government. When people would show up with gunshot wounds right after security forces had been shooting at protesters, people would look at them and the natural assumption was that if this person has a gunshot wound, they got to be a protester. So whether it was willingly or unwillingly, the hospitals ended up handing over these people to the macabre. These people oftentimes needed to be in the ER or the ICU with grievous injuries. Instead, they're handed over to people who will torture them. In addition to being shot in the streets, you could also just get picked up and never seen again dragged off to the most horrible prison imaginable. No, it's worse than you can imagine. And then being tortured there for months or years, and you'll probably die as a result of the torture. I mean, we throw around the word torture to describe stuff done by a lot of countries, but as we've gone over in other episodes, torture in Syria is unique. And sometimes if you survive being shot in the streets being handed over by your doctors to people who torture you, and then you don't die from the torture, you might end up in a mass execution. That's the kind of risks that protesters in Syria faced in 2011. The report, We've Never Seen Such Horror by Human Rights Watch, has a very detailed and, frankly, graphic segment describing exactly this. Quote, Two witnesses independently reported to Human Rights Watch a case of an extrajudicial execution of detainees on May 1st, 2011 at the ad hoc detention facility at the football field in Dara. One of the witnesses, Ali, said, We were brought into the football field where I managed to take my blindfold off. There were about 2,000 detainees there. They brought me there around 6 a.m., and several hours later, the guards went around the field, randomly picking some detainees. I counted them. They picked 26 people, all young, physically fit men. As they picked them, they would say, We found weapons on you. I knew one man. His name is Talib. His wife is from our neighborhood. They lined him up in one line, facing him away from us, from where I was standing. Six or seven soldiers were in front of us, some two meters away, and the selected detainees were in front of the soldiers, facing away ten meters in front of the soldiers. They were all blinded and handcuffed. The soldiers had Kalashnikov rifles. One of the soldiers, I think he was an officer, I don't know for sure, raised his hand and waved and they fired, without saying anything. It was automatic gunfire, and the 26 men immediately fell on the ground. Everybody was too scared to even move, let alone say anything. Many people were blindfolded and couldn't see what had happened. 
The soldiers picked up the bodies and moved them into a military truck. These are Russian military trucks that look like big Land Rovers. They belong to the military battalion 132. This battalion is stationed in Dara, not far from the place where I live, so I've seen them before. They brought three of these trucks and loaded all the bodies on them and drove away. Ali said he did not know what had happened to the other bodies, but Taleb's body was never returned to the family, and Taleb's wife did not know what had happened to him, as he and other witnesses were too scared to tell anyone about what they saw. Another witness, Hussein, interviewed independently, provided a similar account to Human Rights Watch. He said, They brought me to the football field at around 9 a.m. I was blindfolded and handcuffed, but could feel and hear that were feel and hear that there were lots of people there already. About 50 minutes later, I was standing with my face to the wall and eventually managed to push my blindfold a little bit up by rubbing my forehead against the wall. I could see by then the field by turning my head back and forth. There were more than 1,500 people there. I saw the soldiers leading away a group of about 20 men, I couldn't tell exactly how many, at gunpoint. They took him to the side about 50 meters from where I was standing. I couldn't see much, but less than 15 minutes later, I heard automatic gunfire and screams. I knew immediately that this group was killed. I was convinced we would be next. We were too scared to even whisper. Then the soldiers started screaming at us, saying, Dogs, you want freedom? You'll have it. They pointed their guns at us, loading and unloading them, saying, You are sentenced to death by gunfire. They didn't mention the guys that were just killed, but it was clear. I was convinced they would shoot us right there. I didn't see what happened to the bodies. I didn't dare to turn my head anymore. Human Rights Watch has not been able to further corroborate these accounts. However, the detailed information provided by two independent witnesses, and the fact that other parts of their statements concerning their detention in the military intelligence facility in Dara and then in Damascus, were fully corroborated by other detainees held in these facilities, supporting the credibility of the allegations. A number of Dara residents and two other Syrian activists interviewed by Human Rights Watch referred to the existence of mass graves in Dara. The limited information available to Human Rights Watch is not sufficient to determine whether the mass graves are connected to the executions. The discovery of bodies in a shallow, unmarked grave in the Bahar area, around 200 meters from the southern cemetery of Dara, in an area known locally as Tal at Muhammad Asari, was widely reported on May 16, 2011 after video footage was posted on YouTube showing a number of men pulling dead bodies from the ground. The footage shows earth-moving machinery with Dara license plate number 977149 assisting in the digging. A Dara resident of the Apazade family, currently in another Arab country, told Human Rights Watch that at least seven bodies were found and that five of the bodies were identified as members of the Abazade family, including 62 year old Abdullah Abdulaziz Abazade and his four grown up sons, Samir, Samer, Mohammed, and Suleiman. The other two bodies had not been identified, but were of a woman and a girl, the source said. He had received the footage from a close friend in Dara, and had helped post the footage on YouTube. 
He said, On May 15th, a Dara man informed a number of local residents that a strong smell emanated from a patch of land around 200 meters from the Bihar Cemetery. The next day, a group of young men, including my cousin, went to the spot and found the bodies close to the surface. They informed the local authorities, who dispatched some people to dig them up. One of the witnesses told Human Rights Watch that on, that, on the day when the grave was discovered, he was in the hospital and saw security personnel bringing in nine bodies in sacks. Five of the bodies, he said, were soon identified by relatives as members of the Abazade family. The witness happened to know two of the sons, while the others remained unidentified. Unquote. That was We've Never Seen Such Horror by Human Rights Watch. Dara was put under a brutal siege that prevented supplies from getting in or information from getting out. And we are going to see many, many cities in Syria suffer a similar fate in the years to come. just heard was an excerpt from the next episode of What Happened to Syria. The first half of episode 11, The Last Straw, will focus on the discovery of what happened to Hamza Ali al-Khatib, other Syrian children brutalized by the regime. The second half will focus on how Syrians responded by protesting and, in a few cases, by engaging in retaliatory violence. Episode 11 will explore a transition from peaceful protest to armed conflict and ask questions one needs to consider when thinking about Syria. When is peacefully protesting the right choice, and when is it not? When is armed struggle the right choice, and when is it not? Lastly, was it even a remote possibility for the Syrian opposition to remain a peaceful, or at least unarmed movement, when entire families were being murdered and children were being tortured to death? It would take a remarkable human being to turn the other cheek in that situation. Most people, even the least violent in this world, are willing to fight when their children are in danger. 